Greetings, dear friends. I extend a warm welcome to my Halloween special, an episode dedicated to a topic chosen by you. In today's episode, we delve into the chilling tale of Jack the Ripper, the infamous character who terrorised Whitechapel in Victorian-era London. I am Molly, the host of this paranormal podcast, where I unravel haunted stories from every county in England. Once I've covered England, my journey will lead me to explore Scotland, Wales, Ireland, America and beyond. My fascination with the unknown has always driven me, and I invite you to enjoy this Halloween and Samhain with a hot drink in hand as I unfold the story of Jack the Ripper. Listener discretion is advised as today's episode delves into the chilling details of Jack the Ripper's crimes, which may be upsetting to some listeners. Special thanks of reference go to Wikipedia and also to the Jack the Ripper tour at jacktherippertour.com for their expert and comprehensive information which aided heavily in my research on this subject. They are London's number one Jack the Ripper tour and are open seven days a week. So if you fancy walking in the footsteps of Jack the Ripper and visiting the buildings, sites and locations of the Grizzly murders, be sure to check them out. Jack the Ripper was the nickname given to an unidentified serial killer who terrorised the Whitechapel district of London in 1888. The name is derived from a letter sent to the police, purportedly from the killer. The true identity of Jack the Ripper remains unknown, and the case remains one of the most infamous, unsolved mysteries in the history of crime. The Ripper primarily targeted and brutally murdered women, sparking a widespread fear during that time. The precise number of victims is uncertain, but it is generally believed that at least five women were killed by the same perpetrator. Despite extensive investigations and numerous theories, the true identity of Jack the Ripper has never been conclusively determined. In Victorian Whitechapel, Jack the Ripper ruled with a reign of terror. During what is now known as the Autumn of Terror, it is thought the Ripper killed at least five women, but the reality is, is that he could have murdered many, many more. The Whitechapel murders have since gone down in history as one of the East End's darkest periods of history, and it's all down to one man whose identity has never been revealed. Insight into the reality of life for the residents of Whitechapel, 1888. Gas, lamp-lit streets and dark, foggy alleys didn't offer the residents of Whitechapel an inspiring backdrop by which to lead their lives. The area was steeped in poverty and all manner of crime and disease. Growing up in this part of London offered a challenge in itself. Many children were seen as a strain on their parents' resources 
and it is believed that two in every ten died before reaching five years old. Victorian London was not a happy place to be, and the facts speak for themselves. Prostitution was rife, poverty and crime were prevalent, and 19th century housing was barely habitable. Finding work in 1888 was extremely difficult for the residents of Whitechapel, feeding into the cycle of destitution and depravity. Whitechapel offered a breeding ground for crime and poor behavioural habits, including murder, prostitution and violence. And vicious circles like these were rarely broken in such poor districts. The streets were unimaginably dirty. Fresh food was hard to come by. Pollution and the smell of sewage hung in the air. Life was much harder for women. The lack of proper work and money led many women and girls into prostitution, a service in high demand by those wishing to escape their grim realities. The women, commonly referred to as unfortunates, owned only what they wore and carried in their pockets. Their deeds would pay for their bed for the night. However, a lack of contraception meant that unorthodox abortions were performed in dirty facilities, including the back streets. This, of course, fed into the cycle of disease and many women would die of infection from these ill-performed surgeries or from ingesting chemicals or poison. While the streets were lined with the starving, penniless inhabitants of the drab and dark capital, the insides of the houses throughout the borough were no less uninviting and more reminiscent of slums. Many were makeshift brothels, offering a bed and a room to those wishing for a short-term escape. However, this was a dangerous trade, as diseases were passed from person to person very quickly, and doctors did not come cheap. Housing was extremely overcrowded, with entire families or groups of strangers crammed into a single room for cooking, eating and sleeping. They would share beds or sleep on the floor, with rags covering broken windows and often flea or insect-infested environments. These damp and cold conditions offered an ideal climate for further disease and sickness to develop. Surviving in the late 19th century often came through casual or sweated labour, like tailoring, bootmaking and making matchboxes. These professions came with very little job security and the work premises would more than likely be small, cramped, dusty rooms with little to no natural light. Workhouses were another alternative set up to offer food and shelter to the poorest of the community in return for hard, gruelling labour in even worse conditions. These horrible working and living conditions resulted in large portions of the population turning to drink or drugs to cope with everyday life. Pubs and music halls were many in number in the East End and drink was cheap too, making it a viable means of escapism for many. It comes as no surprise that as a result, crime rates spiralled 
and were unmanageable by London's police force in 1888. Petty crime like street theft was commonplace. Alongside more serious disturbances like alcohol-related violence, gang crime and even protection rackets. The high level of prostitution meant that vulnerable women were often forced to earn a living on the streets, leaving them easy targets for assault, rape and even murder. It is noted that all of Jack the Ripper's victims were addicted to alcohol. Some believe this would have made them easier targets for the killer. Police stations and the detectives at the helm lacked structure and organisation, with many crimes being mislabeled, evidence going missing or being tampered with, and in the case of Jack the Ripper, violent serial killers left to roam the streets of London. The maze of dingy alleyways and dark courtyards, each with multiple entrances and exit points, only made the district even more difficult to police. There were even some parts of Whitechapel the police officers were afraid to enter, making them crime hotspots. The order of events. Number one, Whitechapel murders begin in 1888. The series of brutal murders attributed to Jack the Ripper begins in the Whitechapel district of London. Number two, Mary Ann Nichols, August 1888, the first victim, Mary Ann Nichols, is found murdered and mutilated. Three, Annie Chapman, September 1888, the second victim, Annie Chapman, is discovered in a similar gruesome manner. Number four, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes in September of 1888, on the same night, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes are murdered. Their bodies are found within hours of each other. 5. Mary Jane Kelly, November 1888. The final canonical victim, Mary Jane Kelly, is brutally killed in her room. 6. The investigation. Despite extensive efforts by the police and public outrage, Jack the Ripper's identity remains unknown. The case remains unsolved, to this day. Jack the Ripper victims. The Whitechapel murders are a series of unsolved killings that were committed in and around the impoverished area of Whitechapel in the east end of London between the 3rd of April 1888 and the 13th of February 1891. Many researchers and historians believe that at least five of the murders were committed by an individual who became known as Jack the Ripper. These victims are known as the Canonical Five. Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly make up the Canonical Five. But some historians claim that the true number of the Jack the Ripper victims is higher. Mary Ann Nichols is believed to be the first Jack the Ripper victim and Mary Jane Kelly is considered to be the last. But with the identity of the assailant still unknown to this day, he could have continued killing elsewhere. So who knows who Jack the Ripper's last victim really was? Maybe his first victim was not Mary Ann Nichols. 
Here is some information about the Canonical Five, as well as some of the Jack the Ripper's other potential victims, so you can draw your own conclusions as to just how prolific the unknown serial killer really was. Martha Tabran, age 39, location of murder, George Yard Buildings, date of death, 7th of August 1888. Born in 1849, Martha Tabram was an East End prostitute living in a Doss house in nearby George Street. Her marriage, which produced two children, fell apart in 1875 due to problems associated with her excessive drinking. Since then, she had been earning a living through prostitution and street hawking, the latter with her new partner, Henry Turner. Although she is not one of the canonical five, Martha Tabram was considered to be connected to Jack the Ripper murders for a long time due to her identity and the nature of her murder. Found on the 7th of August 1888 on a landing in George Yard, Martha Tabram had 39 separate stab wounds inflicted with two different weapons. The treatment matched that of other victims of Jack the Ripper bodies, as well as her position as a prostitute at Whitechapel, initially led to her death appearing to be connected to the Jack the Ripper murders. However, a later discovery in the mid-20th century resulted in a general consensus that she was unlikely to be the first Jack the Ripper victim. Emma Smith, age 45, Location of murder, London Hospital. Date of death, 4th of April 1888. Ebba Smith was the earliest recorded victim in the Whitechapel murder files, having died on the 4th of April 1888 in London Hospital. She lived on George Street, Spitalfields, and was generally known to be a prostitute, though there was much mystery surrounding her life. Emma died from peritonitis, the rupturing and inflammation of the tissue inside the abdomen. Her death was caused by a brutal attack on the evening of Easter Monday, 2nd of April, kicking off the Whitechapel murders that spanned from 1888 to 1891. Mary Ann Nichols, age 42, location of murder, Bucks Row, date of death, 31st of August, 1888. Today, Mary Ann Nichols is widely considered to be the first of Jack the Ripper's targets and the first of the canonical five Ripper victims. 42 years old at the time of her death, Mary Ann Nichols was a casual prostitute who was residing in the lodging house in Thrall Street. Despite producing five children, her marriage failed in 1880 due to her frequent overindulgence in alcohol. Just two years later, Mary Ann Nichols had begun working the streets in order to earn a living. Undoubtedly, this is what she had been doing on the night she died, especially since it later transpired that she had been turned away from her Doss house for failing to provide the sum of fourpence for her bed. Looking back, it was ascertained that she may have spent the money on alcohol as she had been seen leaving the frying pan pub on Brick Lane beforehand. P.C. John Neal, 
was patrolling Bucks Row, a gloomy street in Whitechapel, for what must have been the umpteenth, umpteenth time on the wet, dreary night of the 31st of August, 1888. As he approached a stable yard next to the board school, he noticed the body of a woman lying on her back. Upon closer inspection, by the light of his lamp, he found that the woman's throat had been cut. P.C. Neal noticed another policeman passing at the end of the street, used his lamp to signal for assistance, and was swiftly joined by P.C. Thane. Mary Ann Nichols's body was taken to the Whitechapel Workhouse Mortuary, where a more detailed examination was carried out the next morning by Dr. Llewellyn. The doctor's post-mortem revealed several injuries, including two deep cuts to the throat, both of which had penetrated down to the spine. The first cut was approximately four inches, ten centimetres long, and the second was approximately twice the size, eight inches or twenty centimetres in length, and stretched from ear to ear, deep enough to sever the large artery. The cuts were framed by two small bruises to both sides of the jaw that were not unlike the impressions left by recent pressure of a thumb and finger, suggesting that the killer had held the woman's throat prior to slitting it twice. There were also a number of abdominal injuries thought to have been made with the same instrument, a strong bladed knife. One deep hacking gash had jaggedly torn the left side of the lower part of the abdomen and as far up as the sternum or breastbone, leaving the intestines exposed. Similar cuts were found on the right side of the torso, including further slashes across the abdomen, but no internal organs had been removed from the body by the murderer. After the post-mortem, Dr Llewellyn concluded that the murderer must have had some rough anatomical knowledge and that the wounds would have been the work of a single killer, taking only a mere four to five minutes to inflict. Further investigation then took place to uncover the identity of the unfortunate victim, which was at first not clear. In her Miega possessions, the woman carried a comb, a pocket handkerchief, a broken mirror and a little black straw bonnet that was found next to her body after the murder occurred. Eventually, she was recognised as a woman who had been living at 18 Thrall Street by Ellen Holland, an occupant of the same lodging house that had known Mary Ann as simply Polly. The victim's petticoat showed a laundry mark of Lambeth Workhouse and an inmate of the workhouse called Mary Ann Monk identified the clothing as belonging to Mary Ann Nichols, the victim's estranged husband William Nichols, was called in to subsequently identify the body, saying, Seeing you as you are now, I forgive you for what you have done to me. Annie Chapman, age 47, location of murder, the backyard of number 29, date of death, 8th of September, 1888. 
Born Annie Eliza Smith in London in 1840, she had married a Windsor coachman, John Chapman, in 1869, but the marriage was fraught with problems and tragedy. Of their three children, the eldest daughter had died of meningitis at a young age, and the youngest, a boy, was a cripple. Annie's persistent drinking and the problems that came from it ensured that the marriage would not survive, but for a while at least, John Chapman gave Annie ten shillings a week after the separation for her to get by. Following his death in 1886, the money dried up, pushing Annie to Spitalfields, where lodgings were cheap and easy to come by. She tried selling crocheted flowers to earn a meagre living, but of course, when times were hard, she would earn her living on the streets. Annie Chapman was a 47-year-old woman living on 29 Hanbury Street, pushed into a life of flower crocheting to try and make ends meet, resorting to prostitution when times were hard. She was found dead on the stone steps leading from the back door of her three-storey Hanbury Street home, which housed 17 people. Chapman was discovered by another resident of the property at 6am, throat cut and body mutilated. Her death caused hysteria, both from the media and in the East End, leading to challenging times for the Metropolitan Police. Elizabeth Stride, age 44, location of murder, Duckfields Yard, date of death, 30th of September 1888. Double Event Part 1 Elizabeth Stride was Jack the Ripper's third victim and her death was the first of what later became known as the Double Event. Two murders which occurred just hours apart on the fateful night of 29th 30th of September 1888. Elizabeth Stride was a Swedish native with a history of prostitution before she moved to London using the inheritance money from her mother's death. She began a fairly good life in London before things fell apart in her marriage and she resorted to prostitution again, which is likely what she was doing on the night of her death, the 29th into the early hours of the 30th of September 1888. Stride was found dead next door to a Jewish anarchist club with a slit throat but no other mutilations, a fact which caused some to doubt Jack the Ripper's involvement. However, the freshness of the corpse led many to believe that Jack the Ripper had simply been interrupted before finishing his work. Catherine Eddowes, age 46, location of murder, Mitre Square, date of death 30th of September, double event part two. 46-year-old Catherine Eddowes was another East End Jack the Ripper victim with a difficult marriage in her past which fell apart, likely due to her drinking problem or her ex-husband's violent tendencies. Eddowes died in the early hours of 30th of September 1888 in a quiet corner of Mitre Square. Reports from locals tracked her movements quite accurately, with reports of her talking to a man only 10 minutes before she was found dead. Her body was found viciously mutilated and her death sparked the theory that the Ripper had surgical experience. 
having removed organs from her body, though this is still hotly debated. Mary Jane Kelly, age 25, location of murder, Miller's Court, Spitalfields, date of death, 9th of November, 1888. Mary Jane Kelly is generally considered to be the final Jack the Ripper victim. She had a fairly mysterious past and at the age of 25 was the youngest of the Ripper's victims by far. Kelly's death was particularly violent. Her body was found inside her home in Miller's Court, Dorset Street, mutilated beyond recognition, with multiple body parts removed and placed around the room. Her death caused an uproar in the community, with crowds forming at her funeral, and she is by far the most famous of the Ripper's victims, as well as the most investigated throughout the years. Annie Farmer, age 40, location, lodgings in George Street, date of attack, 21st of November, 1888. Whilst it's widely agreed that Annie Farmer wasn't attacked by Jack the Ripper, at the time of her attack, not even 48 hours after Mary Jane Kelly's brutal murder, there was much speculation. Annie Farmer was a 40-year-old divorcee who had taken to a life of prostitution to make ends meet. Upon meeting a man and taking him to a lodging house in George Street, the man was seen running out of the building and Annie Farmer followed, claiming he had attacked her. Her wound was stitched and she was taken to hospital. The media covering the incident as a potential new Ripper victim, though the police thought differently. Rose Milet, 29, location Clark's Yard in Poplar, date of death 20th of December 1888. Catherine, or Rose Milet, was 29 at the time of her death, nicknamed Drunk Lizzie Davis, due to her infamous drinking habits. On the night of her death in December 1888, she was last seen intoxicated with two men before being found in Clark's Yard at 4.15am. Ultimately, her death and the inquest around it didn't suggest that she was murdered by Jack the Ripper, but it did demonstrate the poor communication within the police force, a common issue that would continue to plague the police during the era of the Whitechapel murders. Alice Mackenzie, age 40, location Castle Alley, date of death 17th of July 1888. Alice Mackenzie, nicknamed Clay Pipe Alice, due to her smoking habit, was 40 years of age when she died in July 1889. Her body was found by a police officer with her neck cut and multiple different stab wounds in locations across the body, all of which could be considered similar to the Jack the Ripper murders of the previous year. Mackenzie was also an occasional prostitute, which further matched the murder profiles of the previous victims. Though there was still conflict in the police force around whether this truly was a continuation of the Ripper's murders. Mackenzie, known as Clay Pipe Alice, owing to her pipe smoking habit, was certainly from the same category of victims as the previous ones. A resident for many years of a lodging house in Gun Street, Spitalfields. She had managed to hold down a regular relationship with John McCormack, 
and although she was deemed to be an industrious woman who worked as a charwoman, she was known to work the streets on occasion, leading police to consider her a common prostitute. The scene of the crime, Castle Alley, a narrow, secluded thoroughfare with a mean reputation, was perfect for the Ripper to commit the crime. And as with previous killings, great risk of capture was ever present. P.C. Andrews, who found her body, had passed the same spot less than 30 minutes previously, and just prior to that, P.C. Joseph Allen actually stood there having a snack. Close by on Wentworth Street was a police sergeant and, of course, a number of residents in the properties close by. Interestingly, Sarah Smith, deputy of the adjacent wash house, who was reading by candlelight in bed by a window that overlooked the alley, claimed to have heard nothing unusual that night until the sounding of P.C. Andrews's whistle on discovering the body. The Pinchin Street Mystery, name unknown, age unknown, location under a railway arch in Pinchin Street, date of death 9th, 10th September 1889. The Pinchin Street Mystery involved the discovery of a headless, legless torso under a railway arch in the area. Due to the lack of identifiable features, mutilation of the body and the fact that it had already begun to decompose, the body was never identified. The state of the body bore a few similarities to Jack the Ripper's victims. However, there had also been other murders happening in the Whitechapel area that were even more likely to be linked to this event. Whilst the unfortunate individual was unlikely to be a Ripper victim, this discovery heightened tensions in Whitechapel and the East End, especially considering the fact that the Ripper murders still remained unsolved. Francis Coles, aged 32, underneath a railway arch in Swallow Gardens near Chamber Street was the location. On the 13th of February 1891, Francis Coles, a 32-year-old prostitute, was found close to death under a grimy dark railway arch with the curiously pretty name of Swallow Gardens between Royal Mint and Chamber Street in Whitechapel. Her throat had been cut. P.C. Ernest Thompson, a newly appointed constable, made the discovery on what was the first solo beat of his police career and just before finding Coles, had heard the sound of somebody running away from the scene. Looking at the body before him, Thompson believed he saw her eye move, suggesting that she was still alive, and it is now believed that she died on the stretcher on her way to the London Hospital. It's unclear whether Coles's death was the result of the Ripper or not, and initially her significant other, a seaman named James Sadler, had been suspected and was charged but later acquitted. This was the final murder marked in the notorious Whitechapel Murders files. Investigation. The mystery of Jack the Ripper was a murder case that eluded the police, highlighting the challenges they faced in apprehending a suspect for the Whitechapel murders. It's crucial to note that the police's inability to arrest and prosecute a culprit didn't diminish their efforts to apprehend the killer of prostitutes. 
They diligently pursued all leads, but their methods were constrained. This ex explanation sheds light on the limitations the police force experienced in 1888, making it unlikely to capture Jack the Ripper. Challenges faced by the new Metropolitan Police Force. In the absence of forensic science, proving a murder required catching the perpetrator in the act or obtaining a confession. The Whitechapel murders occurred during this era, prompting a significant increase in police presence in the area. Frequently, the police discovered the Ripper victims while they were still warm. However, unless the Ripper was caught in the act, the police had minimal opportunity to solve the case. Double trouble. Two separate police forces conducted investigations into the Ripper murders. The Metropolitan Police, also known as Scotland Yard, was responsible for crimes across all London boroughs except the City of London. The City of London, encompassing a single square mile in central London, had its own police force. When Eddowes was killed within their jurisdiction, they became involved in the Ripper case. While most members of the two forces collaborated effectively, there is evidence suggesting discord among senior officers. Did their lack of cooperation during the Ripper investigation allow the killer to escape justice? Most sources refrain from blaming either police force for their inability to solve the Jack the Ripper mystery, Acknowledging the inherent difficulty of capturing serial killers, even with today's advanced science and technology. Forensic evidence. In the absence of advanced techniques like DNA analysis and fingerprinting, the Metropolitan Police Force had limited options, besides conducting autopsies and gathering statements from potential witnesses. During the Ripper murders, forensic evidence as we know it today did not exist. Surprisingly, at that time, police believed capturing an image of the victim's eyes shortly after death could reveal the murderer's face. Nowadays, law enforcement relies on DNA, fingerprinting and advanced forensic methods to apprehend serial killers. Back in 1888, creating an accurate artist's impression of the Whitechapel murderer proved to be a challenging task beyond the police's capabilities absence of a reward. Contrary to the usual practice of offering rewards to the public for information on serious crimes, no such incentive was provided during the Whitechapel murders. The prevailing sentiment among the people at that time was that the police, led by Commissioner Sir Charles Warren, were inept at detective work. Warren, criticised for his focus on crowd control rather than solving crimes, faced particular condemnation for not offering a reward in the hope of eliciting information about the Ripper from potential accomplices. Interestingly, Warren himself did not oppose the idea of a reward. It was his superior, Home Secretary Henry Matthews, who denied approval for offering such a reward. Manipulation of evidence a significant disagreement between the leaders of the two police forces arose over a graffiti discovery in Goulston Street during the double event. A portion of Eddowes's apron, which the Ripper used to clean his knife, 
was found near a doorway with a chalked message above it. The message, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, potentially linked to the Ripper, led city police officers to want to photograph it. However, Commissioner Warren was concerned that waiting until daylight to photograph it might incite anti-Semitic sentiments among the residents who already suspected the Jewish community in Whitechapel. Ultimately, no suspect was charged with the Ripper murders, indicating a lack of sufficient evidence that could secure a guilty verdict in court. This limitation was more a result of constraints of police work at that time and not a reflection of the effort invested in the investigation. Suspects After more than 130 years since the infamous Whitechapel murders, the true identity of Jack the Ripper remains a mystery. Throughout the past century, numerous potential culprits have been scrutinised, including some who were relatively recent suspects in relation to the attacks. However, no one has been definitively linked to the gruesome crimes. Various Jack the Ripper suspects possess compelling profiles that seemingly align with the crimes committed. Others are more obscure and some are downright bizarre. Each Ripperologist has their own interpretation of the most plausible suspects and the reasons behind their beliefs that these individuals could be London's notorious serial killer. From Prince Albert to James Maybrick, Jack the Ripper suspects come from diverse backgrounds, but everything remains speculative at this point. Modern technology's advancements have raised more questions than answers. The unknown identity of the serial killer who terrorised the East End streets continues to captivate making Jack the Ripper as intriguing today as he was a century ago. Perhaps in the years to come, a new Jack the Ripper suspect will emerge. For now, we explore some of the key suspects and prominent names associated with the case. Carl Feigenbaum It's unlikely that anyone knows who the real Carl Feigenbaum is. It's reported that he changed his name several times, meaning that we may never know his true identity. What we do know, however, is that he was born in Germany circa 1840 and died in New York's Sing Sing prison in 1894. Carl was killed via electric chair after committing the brutal murder of Mrs Juliana Hoffman in 1894. She was his landlady and in the early morning Carl was found standing over her body brandishing a large carving knife. Jack the Rip- like Jack the Ripper, Carl reportedly had a desire to mutilate women. He also knew more than most of the human anatomy, and after his death, Feigenbaum's lawyer, Mr William Sanford Lawton, gave an interview saying that he believed his former client to be Jack the Ripper. Like the murder of the five Ripper victims, Mrs Hoffman was attacked with a knife, stabbing her and cutting her throat whilst her son watched from the window. The woman died in what was said to be an apparent robbery. Another reason that Carl Feigenbaum is suspected is that the fourth Jack the Ripper victim, Catherine Eddowes, was killed not far from St Catherine and the London docks. After former murder squad detective and Ripper expert Trevor Marriott did some digging, it was found that a boat called the Ryher docked at the time of the murders 
and Karl Feigenbaum was on it. The similarities between the crimes seem to be the use of weapon and brutality of the crimes. However, that is where it ends. Some reports suggest that Karl Feigenbaum was nowhere near Whitechapel during the Ripper's killing spree, although he didn't arrive in America until around 1890 and it has always been suggested Jack the Ripper travelled. An EFIT photo of Jack the Ripper was produced in 2011 and the face is reportedly that of Mr Karl Feigenbaum. The description that he used to create the image came from his admittance in the New York prison. However, no photos of him exist, so it seems highly presumptuous to suggest that the image is of Feigenbaum. Also, due to Mr Marriott's report, it may suggest that Feigenbaum, at most, only committed some of the Ripper murders. Joseph Barnett Joseph Barnett was the one-time boyfriend of Ripper victim Mary Jane Kelly. He is the only suspect who is known to have a direct link with one of the victims. Born on the 25th of May 1858 at Four Harebrain Court, Whitechapel, Barnett's parents were John and Catherine Barnett, who had originally moved from Ireland and settled in Britain, where John took up work offloading ships by the London docks. Some years later, John would become a licensed fish porter in Billingsgate Market. By 1871, Joseph Barnett followed in his father's footsteps and gained his first fish porter licence. Joseph was also registered on the census as living at number 4 Osborne Street, in the heart of what later became known as Jack the Ripper's stomping ground. Francis Craig in 2015, a new name in the form of Francis Craig was raised as a suspect in the Jack the Ripper case. With numerous theories released year on year as to whom the killer could have been, it is difficult to take many with more than a pinch of salt. However, there is one theory that refuses to disappear after coming to light in 2015 as a result of Dr Wynne Weston Davis's book on Mary Jane Kelly the last of the canonical five. Born in Acton, London, 1837, Craig was a Victorian newspaper reporter and would enjoy success in his career, working in the United States of America between 1864 and 1866. Despite being found to have been plagiarising the Daily Telegraph, Craig would assume the role as editor of Indicator and West London News. On the 24th of December, 1884, Craig married Elizabeth Weston Davis in Hammersmith. However, according to Dr Wynne Weston Davies, Craig discovered that his wife was engaging in prostitution and filed for divorce in 1886. According to Dr Weston Davies, he is the great-nephew of Elizabeth Weston Davies and claims that while she was working in prostitution, she would use a fake identity that she was in fact Mary Jane Kelly, the fifth victim of Jack the Ripper. Weston Davies' theory revolves around Craig, whom he believes to be his great-uncle, to have plotted to kill his estranged wife for revenge. As a reporter, Craig had covered many criminal cases and had become familiar with police methods, therefore killing four other women as a cover-up for his true motive. If this theory is proven to be true, the mystery would be no more. Drat the Ripper would be unveiled as Francis Craig 
a then 51-year-old journalist who would have been covering his own brutal murders. The team investigating the true identity of Mary Jane Kelly has been pushing for an exhumation of the body for DNA testing, with reports that the Ministry of Justice would grant a licence. Although it is unlikely at this point the true identity of Jack the Ripper would be unveiled, this does add an interesting dimension to the case. Prince Albert Victor Prince Albert Victor, the grandson of Queen Victoria, was second in line to the British throne. Even though he had an illustrious future to look forward to, things quickly went awry for the prince. A stagnant military career, apathetic personality and rumoured homosexuality all contributed to the fact that he was largely seen as a disappointment to the royal family. Before his premature death, in 1892, at the age of just 98. There is much speculation surrounding Prince Albert Victor's later life and final years, not least because of his rumoured connection to Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. But despite his privileged upbringing, was a life of wealth and luxury not enough to satisfy Prince Albert Victor's bloodlust? Could this intriguing figure have been the mystery man behind the horrific spate of murders that shook the East End all those years ago. This theory first came to light in 1962 in a book written by Philippe Julian. Perhaps conveniently for Julian, most of the key names in the original Ripper investigation had passed away by this time. Julian's bold theory linked Prince Albert Victor with the horrifying murders committed by Jack the Ripper. In fact, he even suggested that the prince was the Ripper himself, a shocking claim indeed. This theory was then also taken up by Dr Thomas Stowell. He published an article which accused Prince Albert Victor of being Jack the Ripper, based mainly on the findings of the prince's physician, Sir William Gull. While Julian's theory may be compelling, its main opposition came from the fact that Julian never provided any solid proof to substantiate his claim. Any theory submitted without clear evidence to support it is always going to come under doubt and suspicion, and that is exactly the case with Julian's theory. However, one of the main reasons behind the theory, and also providing the evidence that Stowell mentioned in his article, was his health and mental condition. Additionally, Prince Albert Victor's death was heavily scrutinised. According to Dr Stowell, Prince Albert Victor contracted syphilis in the West Indies. It is said that the fatal disease led to a decline in the prince's mental health, eventually causing him to become insane. Dr Stowell also said that it was this insanity that compelled him to become Jack the Ripper and murder a string of vulnerable women in the East End. What's more, Dr Stowell went on to claim that the royal family were fully aware of both Prince Albert Victor's deteriorating mental health and his secret identity as Jack the Ripper. He says that despite the fact that the royal family knew about the murders and who was behind them, they chose to do nothing. Moreover, no attempts were made to restrain Prince Albert Victor until the double event, the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes on the same night. As the syphilis worsened, the prince's mental state continued to go downhill, until eventually he was confined to an asylum where he spent the remainder of his days. 
Despite the bold nature of the theory and claims, the concrete evidence to support it was minimal at best. For starters, although Dr Stowell claimed to have used Sir William Gull's medical notes as a basis for his article, this was never proven. Gull passed away in 1890, two years after the Ripper murders, yet two years before Prince Albert Victor's death. In addition, it was confirmed that Prince Albert Victor wasn't even in London when most of the Ripper murders took place. Another theory suggested that one of the Ripper victims was pregnant with Prince Albert Victor's unborn child. In order to silence her voice and protect the integrity of both the Prince and the Crown, the concept of Jack the Ripper was dreamt up. The theory says that the mother of his child was murdered alongside all the other women who knew the Prince's little secret. However, once again, no solid evidence to support this theory has ever come to light and it is probable that this theory is nothing more than purely fanciful speculation. Montague John Druitt, born in Dorset on the 15th of August 1857, Montague John Druitt came from a privileged background. He was educated at Winchester College and excelled at sports, developing an interest in cricket from an early age. With a glowing academic track record, supported by his cricketing prowess, Druitt won a scholarship to New College, Oxford, where he continued his education. Montague Druitt continued to excel whilst at Oxford, playing cricket and rugby for the college team. Following graduation in 1880, Druitt decided to pursue a career in law. Druitt set up a practice as a barrister and special pleader in 1885, renting legal chambers in the Temple area of London. It is unclear whether his business struggled or he simply wished to fund a more lavish lifestyle, but either way, Druitt also worked as an assistant schoolmaster at a London boarding school to supplement the income earned from his legal business. For reasons that remain unclear to this day, Montague Druitt was dismissed from his position at the London Boarding School on 30th of November 1888. The only clue we have is a newspaper report from the time which quoted that he had been dismissed because he had got himself into serious trouble. Exactly what that trouble entailed, we will probably never know. Whatever transpired in Druitt's life at the time clearly affected him deeply as he went missing in early December 1888 and as far as we know, he was never seen alive again. The body of Montague John Druitt was discovered in the River Thames on the 31st of December 1888. It quickly became clear that his body had been in the river for a while, presumably since his disappearance. His pockets were full of stones, which had most likely contributed to the considerable period of time between his death and the discovery of his body. Interestingly, a considerable amount of money for the time was found on Druitt's body. Could this have been a severance payment from the boarding school or something intended for more sinister purposes? Even today, over 130 years after his death, we are still unable to paint the complete picture of what happened to Montague John Druitt and why. Did he commit suicide or was he murdered? Did losing his job at the school drive him over the edge? Were there additional forces at play that we don't know about? The answers to all these questions may well hold the key to the mystery of Montague Druitt's untimely end. Some contemporary experts have suggested 
that Druitt could have been dismissed by the school for homosexual behaviour, which was illegal at the time. It is thought that this could then have driven him to suicide. Alternatively, another theory suggests that the large amount of money found on his body, £16 in gold and a cheque for £50, could have been payment for a blackmailer. In today's money, this equates to a total of around £7,500, a substantial amount to be carrying on your person without good reason. A third school of thought speculates that Druitt did indeed commit suicide, but it was caused by a hereditary psychiatric illness rather than any evidence of homosexuality. We know that Andrew Montague's mother was institutionalised in 1888 due to depression. Similarly, Anne's own mother committed suicide, as did Montague's eldest sister Georgiana in later life. It's clear that a history of depression and psychiatric illness ran in the maternal line of the Druitt's family, but this but was this the reason for his apparent suicide? A suicide note addressed to his brother was discovered in Druitt's home. The note read Since Friday I felt that I was going to be like mother, and the best thing for me was to die. Despite inconclusive and contradictory evidence, the jury at the inquest into Montague Druitt's death concluded that he had indeed committed suicide, delivering the verdict that Druitt drowned whilst in an unsound state of mind. Whether this was true or not, we may never know. At first glance, it may seem as though this well-to-do gentleman with a keen interest in law and sports could surely have nothing to do with the horrific tale of Jack the Ripper. However, Druitt's unexpected death suddenly threw his name into the spotlight. After the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, the last of the canonical five Ripper victims, rumours began to circulate, saying that Jack the Ripper had drowned in the River Thames. Later in 1891, Henry Richard Farquharson, the MP for West Dorset, publicly declared that the Ripper was the son of a surgeon who had committed suicide following Kelly's brutal murder. He gave no name, but the description and circumstances clearly pointed to Druitt. Similar comments and allusions were made regarding Montague, Druitt and Jack the Ripper being one and the same by other notable figures of the time. This included journalist George R. Sims, assistant undersecretary of the Home Office, Sir John Moylan, and assistant commissioner of the CID, Sir Basil Thompson. Perhaps more importantly, Druitt was also named among the premier Jack the Ripper suspects by Sir Melville McNaughton in his 1894 private memoirs. McNaughton drew particular interest to the time frame, highlighting the short gap between the murder of Mary Jane Kelly and Druitt's estimated time of death in early December 1888. Interestingly, he also claimed to have been in receipt of private information which left little doubt as to Montague Druitt's guilt. Sadly, the specifics of this private information remain a mystery. While we may never know for certain, there certainly seems to be strong evidence to point both ways. Some argue that the timing of Druitt's death was just an unfortunate coincidence in light of the recent Whitechapel murders. Saying that Montague Druitt had actually been playing cricket, matches or defending clients as part of his legal business when the murders took place. Could Druitt have been Jack the Ripper if he had solid alibis for the times of the murders? 
Conversely, others are convinced that Druitt is the man responsible for the crimes. After all, he both lived and practised his legal business in London, meaning that he could easily have travelled to and from the city between the murders. But is this enough to cement his guilt? No matter what you believe, though, it's clear that Montague John Druitt was a troubled soul who may have carried a clue to the Ripper's identity to his watery grave. Michael Ostrog. Much of Michael Ostrog's life is wreathed in shadow. Clearly, this was a man who liked to keep his secrets close to his chest. Ostrog was born in Russia in approximately 1833, yet we know little of his life until he arrived in the UK in 1863. By this point, it seems as though Michael Ostrog had already committed to a life of scams, robbery and petty theft. In 1863, he was arrested and jailed for 10 months for trying to rob the University of Oxford. At the time, he was also using the Elias of Max Grief, a trend that would continue later on in his life. Over the next 25 or so years of his life, Michael Ostrog spent his time in and out of various prisons up and down the country. His crimes ranged in severity from fraud to robbery, contempt and even attempted murder. He resisted arrest and tried to fire a gun at police officers in Burton-upon-Trent in 1873. Yet in March 1888, he was released from prison in the UK for the final time. In September 1888, Ostrog committed another robbery in Paris and was imprisoned before finally returning to the UK in 1891. He was then detained in an asylum for apparently not being of sound mind. Over the next few years, Michael Ostrog was periodically in and out of prisons, the asylum and the country. The exact details still remain unclear and much of his later life is muddy. However, we do know that all of the information about Michael Ostrog disappears from 1904 onwards. No more arrests, recorded crimes, press reports or sightings. Did he meet an untimely end? Or did he simply disappear underground to live out the remaining years of his life? The likelihood is, is that we will never know. Michael Ostrog was not considered to be a Jack the Ripper suspect until his name was mentioned alongside several other notable Ripper suspects in a memorandum in 1894. Sir Meville McNaughton was the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in London between 1903 and 1913 yet he also played a role in the Whitechapel murders case. In this memorandum, he proposed Michael Ostrog as one of the most likely Jack the Ripper suspects, in his opinion, alongside Montague John Druitt and Aaron Kosminski. However, despite McNaughton's belief in his guilt, it was never actually proven that Michael Ostrog committed any murders, thefts, robberies, scams and frauds. Yes, but murders. The evidence remains inconclusive. Additionally, a contemporary investigation found that Michael Ostrog was actually in prison in France in 1888, at the time when the Ripper murders took place. Unless Ostrog could move very quickly or had a secret identical twin, then this evidence pretty conclusively rules out his involvement in the murders of the canonical five Jack the Ripper victims. Francis Tumblety. 
Born in 1833, Francis Tumblety's humble start to life is something of a mystery. Some sources say he was born in Ireland, while others suggest he was actually born in Canada. Regardless, we know that he moved to Rochester, New York, with his family within the first decade or so of his life. As a young adult, he gained employment working at a drugstore and was apprenticed to a doctor there. He earned additional money peddling pornographic books on the nearby canal, setting the pattern early for a dual life, steeped in gloom and deception at every turn. Tumblety moved around a lot during the 1850s and 1860s, staying in various places across the US and Canada, but never truly settling or finding a permanent home for himself. He posed as a doctor on his travels, claiming to have secret knowledge of mystical cures and medicines from India, but it is highly likely that this was simply fabricated in order to drum up more business and interest in his services. He was arrested in Canada twice, once for performing illegal abortions, then again for the sudden suspicious death of a patient. In 1865, Tumblety was living in Missouri under the fake name of Dr Blackburn, However, this backfired spectacularly when he was mistakenly taken for the real Dr Blackburn, who was actually wanted by police in connection with the murder of Abraham Lincoln. As a result, Francis Tumblety was arrested once again. Eventually, Tumblety's luck ran out and on the 7th of November 1888, he was arrested in London. Although the specifics of the arrest are not known today, we do know that he was arrested for unnatural offences, which could have meant several different things. This could have also have referred to homosexual relations or rape, as homosexuality was illegal at the time. He was released on bail, which crucially means that he was free and potentially able to have committed the horrific murder of Mary Jane Kelly on the 9th of November 1888. The time frame fits, and evidently, the police came to this conclusion too, as Tumblety was subsequently rearrested on November the 12th and held on suspicion of murdering Mary Jane Kelly. Released on bail once again on the 16th of November, Francis Tumblety took the opportunity to flee London. He ran first to France before returning to the US, much to the bemusement and frustration of police on both sides of the pond. Tumblety did a vanishing act and seemingly disappeared into the ether. The next few years were a mystery and Tumblety did not resurface again until 1893, five years later. He lived out the remainder of his life in his childhood home of Rochester, New York, where he died in 1903 as a wealthy man. The evidence certainly seems to point toward Tumblety's guilt and indeed the fact that he was arrested multiple times in connection with the Ripper murders suggests that he was certainly one of the police's top Jack the Ripper suspects. Today, many of the details have been lost over the years. The original Scotland Yard files are missing, meaning that we do not know why Tumblety was charged or indeed what he was charged with in connection to the Whitechapel murders. However, one thing we can learn from the arrests is that the evidence brought against Tumblety could not have been watertight, otherwise he would never have been released on bail. It seems there was still an element of doubt in the minds of the detectives. Years later, John G. Littlechild, head of the special branch, 
claimed that Tumblety was indeed a likely Jack the Ripper suspect. He also said that a large dossier had existed containing firm evidence against the Doctor. However, it seems that this file has either been lost or destroyed over the years, if it ever existed at all. Alternatively, it could still be tucked away somewhere, somewhere hidden in Scotland Yard's archives. The possibility is extremely slim, but the idea of the missing dossier finally reappearing after all these years is certainly presents an intriguing prospect. Additionally, Francis Tumblety also seems to fit the criminal profile of the man behind the Ripper murders. He certainly possessed some degree of medical knowledge and he was said to have frequently expressed his dislike of women. Known to be self-obsessed and odd, was this enough to cement Tumblety's guilt? Was this mysterious American doctor, Jack the Ripper? So other suspects that you can look up online is James Maybrick, Aaron Kosminski, Walter Sickert, David Cohen, Thomas Cutbush, Suerin Klosakowski, Dr Neil Cream, Robert Mann, George Hutchinson, William Berry, um, conclude what I've written here for you to look up online. And there were some Jack the Ripper letters. So during the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888, hundreds of letters were sent to the police and local press, claiming to be written by the killer. Many of them are considered to be fakes, probably written by the public or even reporters, hoping to keep the story alive to sell more papers. You've probably heard of the famous Dear Boss letter, which first introduced us to the name of Jack, Jack the Ripper, as well as other infamous letters, which came packaged with a part of a human kidney in one of them. Whether or not these were penned by the mysterious killer, these Jack the Ripper letters, as well as the others received by the press and authorities, certainly made for a compelling story that has lived on for more than a century. So, we may never truly know who Jack the Ripper was, but the nature of the Ripper murders and the impoverished lifestyle of the victims drew attention to the poor living conditions in the East End and galvanised public opinion against the overcrowded insanitary slums. In the two decades after the murders, the worst of the slums were cleared and demolished, but the streets and some buildings survive and the legend of the Ripper is still promoted by various guided tours of the murder sites and other locations pertaining to the case. For many years, the Ten Bells public house in Commercial Street, which had been frequented by at least one of the canonical Ripper victims, was the focus of such tours. In the immediate aftermath of the murders, and later, Jack the Ripper became the children's bogeyman, Depictions were often phantasmic or monstrous. In the 1920s and 1930s, he was depicted in film, dressed in everyday clothes, as a man with a hidden secret, preying on his unsuspecting victims. Atmosphere and negativity were suggested through lighting effects and shadow play. By the 1960s, the Ripper had become the symbol of a predatory aristocracy, 
and was more often portrayed in a top hat dressed as a gentleman. The establishment as a whole became the villain, with the Ripper acting as a manifestation of upper-class exploitation. The image of the Ripper emerged or with or borrowed symbols from horror stories such as Dracula's cloak or Victor Frankenstein's organ harvest. The fictional world of the Ripper confused with multiple genres ranging from Sherlock Holmes to Japanese erotic horror. Jack the Ripper features in hundreds of works of fiction and works which straddle the boundaries between fact and fiction, including the Ripper letters and a hoax diary, The Diary of Jack the Ripper. The Ripper appears in novels, short stories, poems, comic books, games, songs, plays, operas, television programmes and films. More than 100 non-fiction works deal exclusively with the Jack the Ripper murders, making this case one of the most written about in the true crime genre. The term Ripperology was coined by Colin Wilson in the 1970s to describe the study of the case by professionals and amateurs. The periodicals Ripperana, Ripperologist and Ripper Notes published their research. In 2006, a BBC History magazine poll selected Jack the Ripper as the worst Britain in history. In 2015, the Jack the Ripper Museum opened in East London. It attracted criticism from both Tower Hamlet's mayor, John Biggs, and protesters. Similar protests occurred in 2021 when the second of two Jack the Chipper fish and chip shops opened in Greenwich with some patrons threatening to boycott the premises. In conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, as we bring this Halloween special episode on Jack the Ripper to a close, it's important to reflect on the profound lessons we can draw from this dark chapter in history. Our exploration has been a journey through the shadows, a testament to the resilience of the human spirit amidst unspeakable horrors. In delving into this story, we've not only paid tribute to the victims, acknowledging the depth of their tragedy, but we've also reaffirmed our shared commitment to empathy and understanding. By approaching this narrative with sensitivity and discernment, we honour the lives lost, reminding ourselves of the importance of compassion in the force of brutality. Jack the Ripper serves as a chilling reminder of the darkness that can exist within humanity, urging us to stand together as a community, fostering connection and support. Through our collective empathy, we can transform even the most harrowing tales into opportunities for growth and unity. So let us carry the lessons of this story with us, inspiring kindness, resilience and a profound respect for the value of every life even in the face of the most haunting mysteries. Thank you for joining me on this journey, reminding me that in the face of darkness, empathy can be our guiding light. And I just wanted to conclude the episode with a little poem in loving memory of all the tragic victims concerned in this brutal case. So in the tender embrace of eternal slumber, rest, dear souls, in peace without number. 
May the stars above gently light your way as you rest in serenity night and day. Your spirits, now free from the world's cruel plight, in our hearts you continue to shine bright. In every gentle breeze and the soft moon's gleam, your presence lingers like a cherished dream. Though your earthly journey was tragically brief, in our memories you find eternal relief. In this quiet moment we solemnly pray, rest in peace dear souls, until the end of days. Thank you so much for listening and I wish you all a wonderful and cosy Halloween. <laughs>